we're in a series, and we have been for the last several weeks, called The Ancient Chaos, where we've been um, talking about the issues of sin and shortcomings. And I know it's not a real fun topic at times, but you guys have been troopers. And I hope that for those of you who have been joining us, that this series has been uh, helpful. I hope this series has been enlightening and even challenging and provoking at times. Um, And we're going to continue this for the next two weeks. This week, um, we're going to be talking about life in the kingdom and this New Testament concept of kingdom and how kingdom relates to this greater idea that we've been covering specifically on sin. So we're going to kind of nuance that a little bit. Uh, Next week, we're going to wrap our series up. Uh, we're going to be talking about what, um, what do we do with sin uh, within the new covenant after Calvary uh, in relationship with Jesus, how are we to view sin and understand sin uh, after grace and in grace and what grace uh, interfaces with sin and what that looks like. And then uh, after that, the March 31st, I believe, Matthew Tistammer is going to be in the house, everybody. So he's going to be joining us. Always uh, a great morning when he's in the mix, our military pastor here at New Life. Um, so we've got a sweet three weeks ahead. But this morning, uh, I'm going to be titling this message, uh, Sin and the Kingdom. Real original, I know. I'm on a roll with this sermon title this morning. But uh, Sin and the Kingdom. And so as we prepare our hearts, let's quiet ourselves and let's pray and let's just settle ourselves from this week that we're uh, coming out of and this weekend that we're coming out of. And let's just present ourselves anew before the Father of heavenly lights, as James says, in whom there is no shadow or turning. The Father who never changes, the Father who we can come to and have full assurance of faith that the cross was enough. And that his love poured out on Calvary is enough for us. And so, Father, we come to you as your kids. We don't come to you as slaves. We don't come to you as orphans. We don't come to you as the disenfranchised who have to feel like we got to muster something up and get our act together if we are to approach you. But we look to Jesus and through Jesus, and we call to remembrance the idea and the truth that anchors us that Christ was enough, and that in faith and hope and life in Christ, we can have communion with you. And so we ask that our life with you would extend into this place this morning, and as we break proverbial bread, and as we sit at uh, tables, and as we sit under your scriptures and discuss how they apply to our lives this morning, we ask for the space to crack open just a little bit more. And we pray for uh, just a little bit more of an open heaven. And we pray for a little bit more of a receptivity of soul. And we pray that the good seed of the word would be scattered in all of our hearts and that you would be pleased in our gatherings and that we would leave here um, provoked. We would leave here with renewed obedience and fidelity. I pray that we'd leave here renewed and with our relational tanks filled with one another, and with you. We ask that you would do it. And we pray that the words of all of our hearts and the meditations of all of our hearts and mouths would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the young adults said, amen. Uh, We're going to kick right off with a discussion question that I want us to nuance and prime the pump a little bit at our tables. And here's what it is. 
how do you understand the New Testament concept of the kingdom? Uh, Jesus talks about it, as we'll see very shortly. It's filled, uh, the New Testament's filled with references to the kingdom. So what do you make of it? How do you understand it, both uh, on a theological level and a practical level? So uh, go ahead, get warm, and we'll talk through this. Pick it back up in about 10 minutes. Enjoy discussion at your tables. Ready, go. Swing for the fences. All right, let's pick this thing up, shall we? So the kingdom, it's, um, I think often it can feel like a very understandable concept and yet a very difficult concept at the same time. Um, obviously, when we look at the New Testament, and really scripture at large, but especially in the New Testament, it gives explicit language uh, of kingdom as a primary paradigm and prism in which we can uh, understand God's interaction with his people. And so when Jesus uh, steps on the scene and when the church after him begin to articulate what the gospel is and how God relates to humanity, there are a number of different ways that they explain it. We hear the family of God, right? Like the church and, and the redeemed are the family of God, sons and daughters ransomed to the Father. Um, we hear the body of Christ, like we are his members who engage in uh, kingdom and gospel mission upon the earth. But then we, we hear very clearly Jesus and the church at large put uh, into language kingdom, 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 kingdom language. Um, and so it's a, it's a really important uh, central concept if we are going to understand the way of faith and this life of faith and our interaction with the Father. In fact, um, we're, I want to walk us through how many times kingdom is actually used in the New Testament. The New Testament alone, okay? Um, in Matthew, this, this, this Greek word, um, basileia, it's used for kingdom. This, that's what it means in the Greek. Um, it's used 54 times in Matthew. It's used 18 times in Mark. It's used 44 times in Luke, three times in John, and 44 times in Acts through Revelation. Okay, so the Gospels alone comprise of the majority of the uses of this word kingdom. And, and um, though there are some of these uses that don't speak uh, directly to the kingdom of God, they're speaking of the kingdoms of this world, they're speaking of government, office, something like that. Those are actually very few references in this uh, 163 times that this word kingdom is used. What we can draw from this is simple. It's kind of a big deal. This is kind of a big concept we're working with. This isn't something on the top shelf that, uh, yeah, we can kind of understand faith. No, this is actually a central paradigm that Jesus and the New Testament authors explained the gospel through, this concept of kingdom. And I think, uh, again, this concept can be slippery and it can be a bit tricky to understand, especially when we're reading the gospels and Jesus largely speaks of kingdom in parabolic language. Right? The kingdom of heaven's like, ah, oh, what shall I compare it to? It's like a sower who goes out and sows seed. The kingdom of heaven, to what shall I compare thee? Uh, it, it's, like a, it's like a vineyard over here. Very parabolic, um, uh, very poetic language that Jesus uses. So it can be difficult sometimes to understand what exactly Jesus and Paul and James and the New Testament authors, what are you talking about when you're using this word kingdom? 
Well, scholars throughout church history, but especially uh, recently, have really established a succinct definition that, that the majority of believers can agree on, what Jesus was talking about when he means kingdom. And it can be summarized as this. Kingdom can be summarized as God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, in God's presence. And if you want a really simple working definition of kingdom uh, to understand what Jesus was talking about and what the New Testament authors were talking about, um, this is a, a pretty solid definition that we can work from. God's people, those whom Yahweh has redeemed to himself, a people who he's called to be uh, reclaimers of the identity that was lost in the fall in Genesis 3. Those who would live under the rule of Yahweh and live as those who uh, live in unbridled and unbroken communion with him just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. The people, but God's place. So God's place, um, in the Old Testament, this was the concept of the promised land. The promised land was not some obscure place. Yeah, just get, get out of this desert, and the promised land's kind of a better ecosystem for you. There's fruit. Uh, word on the street is that it's flowing with milk and honey. I don't know. Check that out, maybe. No, it's this place where the people of God um, lived, and um, this ecosystem in which they embodied and lived out this identity as the people of God. So it wasn't some arbitrary location, but it was the place in which they lived out this identity as God's people. So it's God's people living in God's place under God's rule. In the Old Testament, this rule um, and this obedience and, and sitting up under the rule of Yahweh was substantiated through the obedience to Torah. So the people of God in the Old Testament, when they kept Torah and when they entered into this shalom of God that we've talked about throughout this series, then um, they were living the way life was designed to be lived under the rule of their intended and original ruler, where Yahweh um, creates the universe. We have two choices, uh, disobey Yahweh and usurp his authority and live uh, in open rebellion and sin and live under the reign and rule of chaos. Once again, we've talked about this. Or say yes to the rule of Yahweh and live in the shalom, the peace, the well-being that we were designed to live in and live in the good life, the way life is supposed to be, this rule of Yahweh. And so that's the Old Testament. But the New Testament, um, Jesus comes on the scene and obviously he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected, and he's the fulfillment of Torah. And so living under the rule of God is living in obedience and fidelity to King Jesus and to ordering our lives around him and to saying yes to him and to sacrificing everything that we have for him, loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and loving neighbor as ourselves. These are the ways in which we sit up under and come under the rule of God. But then it's also a people living in God presence. Because if we were to stop with that definition, it's God's people living in God's place under God's rule. Great. Um, that can kind of be deism. <laughs> we can interpret that as God's up there and we're, okay, just arbitrarily kind of trying to live obedient. But God promises his very presence to be with his people. This was uh, testified in the Old Testament with the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, the Holy of Holies, where you would go and you would offer sacrifices and Yahweh promised to dwell among his people. 
But then in the New Testament, we see this crescendo and become fulfilled in Jesus' ascending of the Holy Spirit, where now all believers are promised to have the Holy Spirit living within them and for their very bodies to be temples of the Holy Spirit and for God's presence and glory to dwell among man. This is the kingdom. God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, in God's presence. Uh, so let's hit pause again, and I want us to, to talk about that definition at our tables. We have a lot of time for discussion this morning. So let's really nuance that, talk through that, um, and spend some extended time discussing this. Here's the question. What, uh, how does this concept of kingdom shape the way that you view the life of faith? Now that we've uh, effectively defined kingdom, how does this shape the way that you understand this life that God has called us to live and this relationship with God that we've been beckoned into both personally and corporately as the people of God? Go ahead, talk about it, and then we'll pick this up in a few minutes. Go. All right. Let's do this thing. Um, real quick. Two tables lovingly called me out that I did not address the New Testament paradigm of God's place. Um, so let me clarify real quick. God's people, we talked Old and New Testament, living in God's place. Okay, so the place in the Old Testament was the promised land. But in the New Testament now, um, we can understand God's place in a more holistic and robust way um, where we can work from uh, a couple different paradigms. One is the Psalms 24 paradigm. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That is that um, the cosmos themselves are inhabited by the presence of Yahweh. But we can also understand it that God dwells specifically and uniquely among the people of God corporate and the person of God individual, where if in fact our bodies are temples, living sacrifices to the Lord, then God, by his Holy Spirit, um, inhabits our mortal bodies, but also comes in a really unique way and dwells among the people of God. So the place is no longer confined to one specific and physical location, um, but it is uh, much more robust and holistic in nature. Does that make sense? That may have been helpful as you guys were discussing, but uh, we'll go from there. So, um, and thank you once again, Tables, for lovingly calling me out. I'm humbled, and I'm going to have to repent after. Anyway, um, so if this is a um, primary paradigm and a point of language that the New Testament uses for um, the, the faith and the gospel, then we need to define the terms a little bit more. Because now the natural question is, uh, as it pertains to us, what does this have to do with sin? Okay, great. We're talking kingdom, and we're, we're defining this. That's awesome. But what about sin? How does sin play into this? Um, and it's important that any time we interpret um, specifically two big issues, faith and sin, um, I think it's, it's important that we interpret them um, uh, in, a, in a responsible way, because they can't be interpreted in a vacuum. Um, we can't just come up with a, a philosophical idea or definition. Yeah, faith is this and sin is this. It has to be anchored in the text, in the scriptures, and in the narrative. So both text and narrative have to inform our understanding of uh, theological principles, but specifically 
um, and profoundly the ideas of faith and sin. So if we're to take this kingdom idea and this kingdom concept and this kingdom framework and define faith and sin accordingly, um, we can ask the question, what is faith within the context of kingdom? Is faith, if we understand kingdom, uh, mental assent? Uh, is faith uh, belief? However, we may define belief because there's a number of different definitions even within that term. How are we to understand faith within the context of kingdom? Well, I think we can uh, summarize it in three words. Uh, allegiance, devotion, and trust. If Jesus is who he said he was, if Jesus was the great I am, if Jesus was Yahweh incarnate, if Jesus was the king coming for his people, then we must uh, believe and we must understand that faith is not simply and merely mental assent. Okay, great. Yeah, Jesus is who he said he was. Awesome. It can't stop there because if Jesus actually was who he said he was, then faith and belief in Jesus must be an, a reordering of our lives according to who he said he was, which means that if Jesus is king and we truly have faith and belief in Jesus, then our allegiance must lie in Jesus. Then our devotion must lie in Jesus. Then his kingdom must be the primary kingdom we're living for and in. Uh, his will be done must be the thing that we're pursuing. It's not us anymore. It's not this life that we're trying to conjure up and manipulate and try to make the best of our ability. No, it's this kingdom, this allegiance, this devotion to King Jesus. Um, but it also entails trust. It's not just allegiance and it's not just devotion on, uh, in these like kingdom terms, but it's trust because we're not serving a tyrannical king. We're not serving this king that's just trying to like muscle up and like I often say Hulk Hogan us like, oh, I'm gonna beat you down if you don't. This is a king who has nothing but unending love and grace and compassion, who the psalmist says, the Lord is merciful in compassion, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is the king Yahweh. This is King Jesus. And so our trust must lie in him, trusting that not only he is who he said he was, but trusting that he's good and trusting that he's loving and trusting that he has nothing but good things for us and trusting that the work he's doing on the earth at large and in our lives is led into goodness and is led by love and is good and it's uh, our flourishing that he has in mind. These, I think, are how we can define this idea of faith within this concept of kingdom. Um, but then let's get a little dicey here and let's define sin. If faith is allegiance and fidelity and devotion and trust, then what is sin within the context of the kingdom? And we flirted with this idea a little bit throughout this series. And um, those of you who have uh, come over the course of this series, you're, you're, the, the pump is probably already primed for you and your understanding of this. But sin, I think we can define as this, mutiny, rebellion, and mistrust in Christ's lordship. Um, once again, this is where I'm, I'm going to be repeating myself a little bit, but we're not, when we're talking about sin, we're not dealing with arbitrary offense towards a preferential God. We're not dealing with the God who just has these, yeah, I would like things to be done a certain way, so if you could do it, that'd be great. And if not, I'm gonna throw the smack down. This is not what this is. If Yahweh is indeed king, and if Jesus is who he said he is, then sin is mutiny. 
Sin is an establishment of a competing kingdom. Sin is an overthrow and an attempt at usurping the lordship of Yahweh. Sin is having kingdom on our terms. Sin is having flourishing on our terms. And uh, furthermore, sin is mistrusting Christ's lordship. It's believing that the lordship of Yahweh and the good life that he has on the table and this shalom, this promise of flourishing and life that he has for us is fundamentally flawed. And that actually we can define what flourishing means. And this is what our postmodern society is doing now. It's, that he, it's, it's calling human flourishing something that's completely outside the reign of Yahweh. And it's defining human flourishing as, oh, humanistically. Oh, if I, I just need to be the best me I can possibly be. And I just need to, I need to self-actualize. And I need to be authentic. And I need to be true to myself. Okay, that's great. But outside the intended ruler and outside the intended rule that we were designed to live under, that is garbage. And how's that working out for you? I'll ask you in 20 years because your life will be fragmented and torn apart and there will be no fruit to show from it because you're living under an unintended ruler and you're living the way life was not designed to be and against the grain of the very universe, we can even say. So sin is mutiny and it's overthrow and it's rebellion. And this is harsh language, but this is language that is inherently embedded into this concept of kingdom. Christ the king and sin as a usurping of this king's authority. And I find it interesting that often in the New Testament, the call to live life into the kingdom is accompanied by a call to repentance. It's not, yeah, the king is here, so like just keep doing what you're doing and keep living. Yeah, maybe he'll sort it out, maybe not. But there is this sobering and even fiery at times call to repentance when there's a declaration of the king being on the scene. We see this in the ministry of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. One of the first things and one of the most uh, dynamic and primary things that he says about the kingdom is this. Matthew chapter 3, he says, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I don't like that, John. <laughs> I don't like repentance. I kind of like to keep things the way they are. I'd like to live life like I'm living. But repent. Make straight your life. Reorder your life of chaos. Get with it. The king is here. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus himself even had this message. We see it in Matthew 4, the very next chapter. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The exact same message of John the Baptist. And so this idea of repentance is uh, intimately interconnected and intertwined with this idea of Yahweh as Lord and King. And specifically as Jesus coming on the scene as the incarnate King. Repent. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Ah, the way we're living is important. The sin in our lives is important to discard and throw off because sin is equivalent to mutiny. There is a king and he will drive out the competing kingdoms of this world. And we see later in Revelation, the kingdoms of this world will become what? The kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Competing kingdoms will be overthrown. 
and usurping of authority will be brought low, and Lord Jesus will be the only king on the throne at the end of the age. And so it's the greater call of the gospel to repent and to order our lives around this kingdom reality. But the gospel doesn't stop here. Because if we were to stop right there and put a pen in it and say, okay, let's stand and pray and dismiss, then um, it, it actually be kind of a worrisome uh, idea that we just wrestle to the ground. Because if Christ is only the prophet declaring the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if he's only the king of the kingdom, well, then we're arguably worse off than those under the old covenant. Because the king's on the scene, great, but we still don't have our act together. We are still ridden with filth and ridden with sin. And actually the king's here and now we're all the more exposed by our sin and flaws and shortcomings. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that Jesus is the prophet announcing the kingdom uh, and the king of the kingdom, but he's also the priest whose sacrifice makes life in the kingdom possible. Jesus didn't just come on the scene as king and say, all right, everybody, get your act together. Here we go, Hulk Hogan time. But he was the high priest, as the writer of Hebrews says, who took on for himself the atoning death and sacrifice for the sins of humanity so that in his death, life in the kingdom that he proclaimed as prophet and life in the kingdom that he's declaring as king can also be accomplished because he himself is the priest who made a way for this life of the kingdom to be possible in the first place. Jesus as prophet, as king, and as priest. And when we understand Jesus in these terms and in these lights, then we can understand that we are not left to our own demise. And that kingdom is not us trying to muster up enough strength and trying to do this thing to the best of our abilities, which is actually humanism with a nice little facade and mask of Christianity, by the way. But it's believing and trusting that Jesus is the prophet, he is the king, but he is also the priest whose broken body rendered the heavens and opened the way for us to live the kingdom life that we were designed and hardwired to live. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 um, puts this priestly language on his lips in some ways uh, when he says this in verses 1 through 4, "'There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.'" For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And check this out. This is it. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There is a righteous requirement of the law. There is a righteous requirement um, of the kingdom. And Jesus himself, knowing full well, as the prophets testify, that even our righteousness is filthy rags before him, he knew full well that we in and of ourselves did not have the ability to lead us in the way everlasting and to lead us into the way of the kingdom. But he, by his broken body and shed blood, opened up the way and fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in us. And so after Calvary, Jesus in his grace sends the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit is the one dwelling in us, in God's temples, uh, guiding us into all truth, provoking us into kingdom life. 
uh, walking with us, uh, beckoning us to keep in step with him so that we may live life uh, under the rule of King Jesus and the way life was supposed to be lived before the fall of Genesis 3. And so uh, the great invitation is, uh, at least in regards to the way of the kingdom, is just that. Let us keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Paul in Galatians 5.25 says that. Now that we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Holy Spirit. It's walking with Him. It's daily choosing obedience. It's allowing our sinful passions and our flesh to come up under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and for Yahweh to have the first and final word over our lives. And when we commit ourselves to fidelity and obedience, knowing that the way has already been made and knowing that the advocate is with us even now, guiding us in the way everlasting, then we walk and we live in kingdom today, in this now and not yet, uh, this age where the kingdom has come, but it is coming in its fullness in the life of the world to come. So the invitation, now that we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us be uh, alleged to King Jesus. Let us live life the way it was supposed to be lived. Amen? Amen. One more discussion um, to really bring this home. What do you find significant about Jesus being prophet, king, and priest that opens the way of the kingdom to us? How is this significant? Why is it important? How do you hear this? Go ahead, talk about this, and then we're going to uh, stand up and wrap this thing up here in just a couple minutes. Final discussion, go. All right, everybody, let's stand and let's wrap this thing up together. Oh, Lord, make more of us yours. Make every area of our lives yours. Um, let no area of our life be untouched by love and adoration and faithfulness and allegiance. Lord, make us entirely and completely yours. Um, and so I pray that as we go from here, you would continue, Holy Spirit, to lead us in the way everlasting. And would you fine-tune our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to see you on the journey with us and to guide us into the truth that we are to walk in, to guide us away from sin and into faithfulness, to guide us away from uh, harmful and addictive behaviors and into the way everlasting and into the life of the kingdom where our satisfaction and our hope and our joy is fully realized. Lord, make it so. Would you protect us? Would you guard us? Would you order conversations this week on college campuses and at our workplaces? And may in every conversation and in every little action at work, in school, and in relationships be worship unto you. And may you yourself receive worship and glory and honor and praise through the living sacrifice that is our body and that is our time and that is our energy and efforts. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everybody said... Amen. Amen.